for a while To be there in velvet Yeah, to give them a smile It's good to get high And never come down Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bork. And Bill, here we are on Sunday night. It's Sunday Night Live, rare, been, a yeah. rare occurrence for us. We've been on a bit of an unintended hiatus for a while. Yeah. Just, just busy. Just stuff, busy. Stuff going Life. On. Life. Work. Life in general work. To love and to work. Yes. As Freud says, is adulting. Yeah. Well, there we go. We've been adulting. <laughs> exactly. I hope. <laughs> anyway. Well, this is part three, uh, Christ as King. Uh, it was interesting today, um, something that you and I were talking about, I can't ever remember if it was on the phone or in person, uh, where we were saying, was Jesus political? And in my sermon today, I kind of did a rift on what we did. I go, was Jesus political? No. Yes. No. Yes. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think this kingship, obviously, it is born from the, from the obviously, it's born from political realm. Well, yeah, and also, I think, like, when we hear the term politics, it's interesting because John, in John Milbank's book, Theology and Social Theory, he, in the beginning, he talks about how the how modernity is so built on sort of adversarial, ontological violence. So everything is, so economics is the study of scarcity, not what we share. Right. Politics is, is you know, competing egoisms for the limited resources, as opposed to coming together, like, to seek the common good, like Aristotle was. So, so when you think of the term, it was just political. I think so often you have to do so much etymology with that because right. what what political would have meant in the ancient world, or and also the, and I'm sure that Campito can be was made since then too. But I mean, the way Jesus is political in the sense of you know the the telos of the Bible is the palas, you know, the city of God, the palatuma in Philippians, the the colony of you know colony of heaven here, which gives way to you know, the city of God and new heaven and new earth. So like, you know, it's like Yoder's book, The Politics of Jesus, uh, which are different than the politics of the earthly city. Well, and even on a more basic level, Jesus dealt a lot in many ways with the issue of power. I mean, there's, I mean, I think, for instance, I, I do think there was the final temptation, at least it's the logical final temptation, it's the final one in Matthew, is, you know, the temptation to bend the knee and for the for the sake of power, and I think, and whether it be in the workplace or in families or um, whatever, you know, the play for power is part of it. Is Michelle now doing book criticism of? Uh, I'm assuming Yoder's book, Yoder or or Milbank. I'm not sure. Yeah. Although I do think John Milbank reads like. A bad English translation sometimes, and English it is his first language. It but, uh, uh, yeah, it does. I think bourbon's a necessity when reading. Oh, <laughs> bourbon, maybe just grain. You don't want new one. Uh, yeah, so it's interesting too. You you think of you think of Israel's monarchic legacy, right? And you have uh, this sense in which. Well, it's interesting, too. There's a book by Graham Goldsworthy, um, reading the whole Bible, preaching the whole Bible as Christian scripture. And he says, you know, it's interesting. In biblical theology, after the fall, or at least from the call of Abraham, the kingdom tends to expand. Now, it's not like it's not one step forward or two steps back in specific instances, but you get from a called family to a clan to a people, right, that then actually 
or more than a confederation of tribes, you, you get a kingdom, right? And and David, and even until you could say maybe the cusp of Solomon, that that the blessing seems to be advancing over the curse in the way it was promised to Abraham. Land, you know, a people, you'll be a blessing. You know, you see some ways Israel is a blessing. And, and then after the kingdom divides, the expansion of the kingdom is more, more by promise, like through the exile. Like there's the continued expanding of, and you could even say that the vision for the kingdom expands in these apocalyptic prophecies in places like Isaiah or Jeremiah. At the same time where on the ground, it seems even less and less possible. <laughs> All right. Well, I think, yeah, you have to do something with those promises. I think, you know, I, I think you can also read the Davidic promise as a competing promise. I mean, it is written, I mean, the minority report becomes the majority report. Right, right. Yeah, the Judean, you know, monarchy survives everything, and that becomes them. they get to write the history. You know, we don't, we don't have uh, – uh, yeah, we don't have the northern history per se, you know, from perspective of it. Matter of fact, there's an interesting that novel. was uh, sequestered by uh, the uh, Judean Congress. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Never saw the light. Uh, that was that was that, that was, see the yeah, light of day. Yeah. Yes, for redacted memos. Yeah. No, but yeah, yeah, but it also I think part of that though that it's not an uncritical redaction, right? Because the idea becomes that like that the the God will assert his own kingship, even if it's through a Davidic heir, but such that the, the heir, the, the, the misuse of the vocation and calling and authority of kingship will be corrected by God's own exercising of it. Well, you also, I mean, they, and also the ongoing questioning whether or not there should ever have been a monarch, monarchy, that all the, the source of all our eels and ultimately the loss of land, at least from the Deuteronomistic history, is the Davidic king is the reason... We lost, they lose the land, at least in the Deuteronomistic history it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so I do think, and, you know, Jerem, you know, I think in particularly the voice of Jeremiah, you both have a critique of, you know, the temple and king are so tied together. And you do have, I think, and even, you know, Jeremiah's vision of the new covenant. You have, if you would, that, that, old, that old vision of, who, you know, when did I ever, I didn't ask you to build me a temple. And so I think as that is being lost, or maybe that's redacted after, Everything is lost. There's, but you know, you still have these promises lingering around, so you have to incorporate it into the vision. But um, you know, the idea that they, that everybody, they'd be a nation of priests and kings. I think that is part of how that's actualized in in the post-exilic moment as well. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because if you look at if Jesus is both second Adam and new Israel in the New Testament, then you have a connection there that that the call of Abraham, I think, is. He's the new Moses too. I, yeah, right. He's the new Moses too. But but you, I you could fold that into new Israel in the sense of as Moses is part of Israel. But there's two, the sense in which the calling of the formation of Israel is seems to be God's response to the Adamic problem. You know that that it, Israel is is called to be a second Adam in, right. in some ways, a new humanity. And yet, just like. Adam, Israel gets lost. I mean, Israel gets lost. Adam, you know, foregoes his own kingly vocation. It's interesting because, you know, the, the whole idea of image of God is more literally like idol, but idol in the sense of not something you worship, but like a, a, like a totem. So, so that, you know, Adam and Eve would be like the totem, the, the sign that this world is under the dominion of the God of Israel. Well, or even... Well, in Genesis 1, they're the God and be little gods. Right, right. And tame the frontier in some sense, right? Like there's the right. sense in which you come from 
the protected sanctuary and then domesticate the the undomesticated but instead they give hearing to uh the serpent and then the the sacred place gets contaminated and you could do all sorts of interesting readings around Canaanite and serpents and the temple and sure. you, know, you know it could read it either way back or forth but so i you know i think that those the, the tragedy of the kingship of israel is in some sense just the tragedy of human misuse of dominion and forsaking our vocation to participate in caretaking of the the created order for and with God. Right. The, the Deuteronomistic historian puts in the mouth of Samuel, right, you have your king, you know, and he'll enslave your sons and turn your daughters, put your daughters in harems. Assuming you make it to heaven, are you going to go, are you, I want to meet the Deuteronomistic historian. I want to meet the First, committee. I want to meet John Meacham. First, I want to have a sit down with John Meacham. I didn't get it on this side. <laughs> and then right after I talk with Meacham, I want to talk to the Deuteronomistic or the committee. I want to hear that. I want to talk to the committee. Not that interested in the priestly group. But nah, now, yeah, no. Nah. I get what's going on there. I don't want to talk to the Deuteronomistic folks. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I'd like to meet Deutero Isaiah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you wonder, maybe they're in a row. Here's Isaiah. There's first Isaiah, second Isaiah. <laughs> there's third Isaiah. They all come together. You can all talk to them in one sitting. That would be like, good. Like Mo Lally and Curly. Maybe yeah, they're poking <laughs> each other's eyes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that would be third Isaiah. Third, <laughs> I think. third Isaiah would be Curly. <laughs> Yeah, so it's interesting. So you you had the sense, right? Like if you if you think that like, you know, Robert Jensen says that you know this whole thing in Ezekiel with the dry bones, right? For like, can these bones live? That this is sort of the, that the resurrection of Jesus is the answer to God's own question. And, and he says, you know, this is Israel's issue of their own existence as a called people. They have you know election, but will the election last? You know, it doesn't look like. It, you're chosen when your position is in life is far from choice, you know, in the, in the exile. And, and yet, you know, it, it's not, it, there's a universalizing of that, yeah. that, that death and all the things that conjure it, like disease and, and oppressive things in church and state, all, all of these realities that, that make you feel more like an object than a subject. Uh, and, and, and less and less like the eternity in your heart is anything like something that is real or, or you know, is anything like a fairy tale. And so you read the gospel stories where Jesus appears kingly and it's often in these, in, in his ability to, 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 you know, have mastery over things like possession, right. Or illness or, or religious regulation or, you know, various things that, but don't you think the religious organization is him taking the rabbinical, right? He, he, yeah, taking it, putting it to right, and like where it's where it's right, where it's made, you know, it, where it's not, you know, we're made the Sabbath's made for us, not us for the Sabbath, kind of thing. Where, By the way, I just had a vision of you in heaven talking to Luke, going, "All right, when you were doing this object subject thing," and Doctor Luke going. Well, he would say it's speaking Greek. You need a little Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> you need to read Hegel. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, well, for me, in some levels, the kingship starts out, well, again, in Luke's gospel, I mean, Luke gives it to you right in the face, you know, with the, the prophecies, the Magnificat, and then all the parallels in Luke 2 with different inscriptions and statements that were made by Caesar Augustus. I mean, that's purposeful. You know, the, the, from the songs of the angel to what was said, he's taking things that were proclaimed and inscribed about Caesar Augustus and applying them to 
the birth of Jesus. I also think the choosing of the 12, okay? It's a symbolic reestablishment of Israel. Um, at the time, Jesus... And if you're playing, you know, pick up basketball, both teams have a six-man. So that's <laughs> nice, too. Yeah, that could be good. You know, I think... One of the, or you know Jesus gets to be goalie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I got one referee. My, my well, it could be my son, mascot. My son, I got. I don't know if this is sacrilegious or not. My one son was a uh, soccer goalie, and I, there's a picture because Jesus saves as Jesus is a goalie, <laughs> saving the ball. But if you if you get to the you know the first century or you know the, the last century of the of the common or of the second temple, um, you only knew there were only three ti- tribes that were still recognized. Because the other ones had been lost, so Benjamin, you knew if you're from the tribe of Benjamin, because that area was around um, around Jerusalem, and Saul of Tarsus is a Benjamite, Judah, and Levi, because the nine or the ten northern tribes had been lost after the Assyrian um, conquering. So even the number twelve is a highly symbolic number. Apparently, they're not that important because their tradition can't even remember their names. You know, when I mean, John only named seven. There, there, well, there aren't twelve. There are no apostles in John's gospel. But the list between Matthew, Mark, and Luke shows you that they couldn't even remember their names. And that's fairly, I think that's significant because it hadn't been that much time. Um, so it says that even very early in the church, the number was a symbolic number. And this idea of reestablishing the kingdom. Also, you know, Mark's gospel is really interesting about how it, it, it's always working with those military uh, illusions, you know, in the feeding of 5,000. They're, they're divided into companies. What are 5,000 men doing in the wilderness during a, during a festival time? Well, there was a lot of unrest. There was a lot of expectation. So there's a sense where in the Gospels, Jesus does play with this idea, um, or at least the authors put him in this position where he is the son of David. Uh, they go out of their way to make sure he's born in David's city. And we get it in those weird genealogies. He's Davidic on both sides. And... Uh, of the tribe of Judah. And then there are certain instances where he certainly, you can understand by the time they get to the triumphal entry that many people, you know, believe that he is a a Messiah that they expected, in spite of how he said he wasn't. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember that one Andy Griffith show, they were going to make this movie about Andy Griffith, and they were going to call it Andy Griffith, Sheriff Without a Gun. But that is like Jesus is kind of like the Andy Griffith. He's kind of the sheriff without a gun. I mean, he, he doesn't. It's very interesting. I mean, kind of the anti-Joe uh, Sheriff Joe, <laughs> Joe Pye. What is that guy's name? A fine American. He's a, a defender of law and order. Yeah, I don't. What a level, rule of law. The what, rule of what law. What level of hell do you think Joe? Or what level of hell will Pence end up in? I don't know. In Dante's, which which level? Now, that would be a good contest. Yeah. Which which level of hell will? Mike Pence end up. Wherever the people that brush their teeth and take a shot of orange juice and go, mm. <laughs> I mean that. <laughs> or, well, what's that? What's level? Is it level three where they just run around? They're, yeah, they're yeah. just blown in the wind constantly. Yeah. Here's a man who's constantly chasing the shadow of our first porn president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, level three. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it 
because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. It's interesting because, you know, Capon has this suggestion that early in the Gospels, before like the figure 5,000, you get, he calls them the parables of the kingdom. And in it, the kingdom is uh, present, mysterious, and Catholic in the sense of it's all over the place. It's And he thinks like when Jesus is sort of transitioning realizing that it's the Mark 8 kind of moment, like around there, or the, after the feeding of the 5,000, depending on the arrangement in the Gospels. But he thinks that some, you see this sort of, okay, we have to change, we have to make the message clear here. And then he co- goes to what he calls the parables of grace. And then cl- the closer he gets to Jerusalem, he thinks you switch over to what he calls the parables of judgment. And it's interesting that, that like you have Jesus telling the parables of the kingdom in a place where people could mistake him for a traditional messianic mm-hmm. pretender or, or, or contender. And the parable, parables of grace come when he's showing the way of the kingdom, which, you know, which is strange. And, and, you know, it's the upside down kingdom and it involves weakness uh, and you lose your life. And, and, you save your life by losing it. And upside down values. Yeah. What's valued is is very different. Yeah. You know? And then it's like a fine pencil point. The parables of judgment lead up to the one moment where the whole biblical story centers to the fine point of the crucified king. So you have this and then at the resurrection it expands again, you know, to include Israel and the nation. So it's a very Well, yeah, and you certainly have I mean, the the parables of judgment are I mean, Luke has some of them too, but, but certainly Matthew has the largest concentration of them, and I think that's. I think that also accentuates. Are you them. saying Matthew's judgmental? Uh, I'm just saying Matthew's Jesus is saying that we're right and you're wrong to uh, <laughs> to uh, the uh, re- reorganized Judaism after after the destruction of the temple, as opposed to like John Shelby Spong's Jesus that says you're right, they're right. No, John, well, we're all right. Spong's Jesus is I'm right, and Jesus is like me. <laughs> Jesus is just all right, but I'm great. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so I, I do, I mean, I think it's interesting to frame, you know, you can frame them, and, and certainly John has a different kind of program going on there with uh, front end and back end of the story. <clears throat> but I think, obviously, um, his messiahship from, from what they were expecting is a failed messiahship. No one was looking for the 
Messiah to get himself killed in Jerusalem. That but, was generally a checklist. Good Messiah, bad Messiah. Die, bad, bad Messiah. Messiah. <laughs> it is interesting. Later on, way later, particularly at the backdrop of the massive killings of Jews during the First Crusade uh, in the Rhineland, there was a new idea of, of a Ben Joseph uh, before Ben David would come would be a suffering Messiah, which reflected the suffering of the massive suffering, maybe over half a million plus Jews killed in the First Crusade. Uh, because people just were the, all kind of zealousness on their way to the crusade and just killed Jews. Um, so, horrible thing. Um, but I do think, obviously, after you know, the resurrected, the exalted Christ, and then all the passages, particularly the Pauline idea of he's Lord and that God has raised him above all names. So the kingship takes on a whole different perspective in the post-resurrection and in what the ascension and where Jesus is in the scope of redemptive history takes on a whole different light of kingship. Yeah, and in Robert Sherman's book, King, Priest, and Prophet, he has this great kind of typological reading of First Kings 12 where we have the example of Rehoboam it says, immediately after he's made king in succession of his father Solomon, Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel come to petition with the following words, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke upon us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam consults first with the old men, uh, who offer the advice that if he will act as a servant to the people, the people will in turn serve him forever. Rehoboam then consults with the young men of his own generation who counsel him to respond to the people's request in part with the words, whereas my father laid upon you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. <laughs> Anyone familiar with the gospel of Matthew cannot help but hear the very different response of Jesus, who in the authority of the granted by the father has become the one true king. All things have been delivered to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father. No one Knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chose to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I love that the advice of the old men who say that if if you'll act as a servant to people, the people will in turn serve you. You know, like yeah. And here Jesus is like not just acting; he's actually being the servant, and and that's the way we become subject to the king. It's interesting because we call it a divine service of worship as if we, God needs our service. Right. It, it actually through word and sacrament, we are served, served by God. And yeah. part of the humility of entering the kingdom is realize, okay, I'm humble enough to be able to let the humble King serve me. Yeah. That's powerful. Rehoboam would have been a great character in game of Thrones. Yes. <laughs> but he would have been like, uh, what's, uh, like, uh, um, who was Robert's brother? Uh, oh, the fire goddess. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, you're, yeah, that would have been your rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also think, yeah, it, you know, there is, there's not one, again, there's not one of these offices or whatever you want to call them who captures, well, Jesus. I mean, there's, there is a, there is a, what do you want to call it? I don't think it's a paradox. I think it's two things. It's more of an antinomy where this idea that Jesus does offers in us this idea. He serves you know, the Last Supper. He washes their feet. He says, you know, I'm your friend. I invite you into this kind of friendship, which is particularly in John's gospel. And so on one level, we're invited into this intimacy. On the other level, we're also, he is Lord. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a, 
Jesus isn't their buddy after the resurrection. It's, it's more profound than that. It's yeah. not the buddy Jesus in the dogma. <laughs> not the buddy Jesus, yeah. And that's kind of, that's one of the powerful scenes there where Mary, you know, what does it mean when Jesus won't let Mary hold him or touch him? It's almost like, don't hold on to who I was. You know, I mean, it's a different relationship now. Yeah, and I think about, like, Luther's freedom of a Christian, the idea that, like, well, once you're, you recognize the grace of God, you realize you're Lord of all because really in all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, nothing can take this yeah. relationship. Yeah. And yeah, free should be servant of all. And so, so it's interesting because the union with Christ, it's, it's, the, it's the Christ pattern, right? Because his total freedom is manifest in his ability to be servant. Right, right. And, as, you know, I, and again, we've talked about this before, but I think the revelation of God's power is really found in his humility. Uh, I mean, I was talking something. I don't know, have any idea what it means that God's omnipotent. I don't even use those words anymore. The revelation. Of, Wait, you just used it. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, well, he like, used them seldomly. <laughs> he used them ironically. The pre, you're the precise. You're the preci- precision police. Exactly. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you just used it. That's true. See, that's very. I stand corrected. Um, but again, again, in both the Hebrew scriptures and in the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. We see the humility of God. We see God's power being constantly manifest in withdrawal or with, withholding his rights, if you would, of emptying of him rights, of taking on the form of a slave, a doulos, you know, in, in the Philippians passage. And I think that's – so it's a different kind of king. You know, it's a very different kind of – it gets back to this idea of the God's approach to power is almost from the beginning is a very different than the kind of image we have in the strong man or the – despot or the iron-fisted ruler. Yeah, so the question maybe is not whether or not God is sovereign, but how God is sovereign, which is the important one. Yeah, I agree. Well, look, we're in agreement. We are. So that's what we should end before because, <laughs> exactly. because the Lord will probably return right now. So. Exactly. So I thank you, friends. We, we do. I think we have a I think we've added a few, at least one more to the series. We're yeah, well, about. Jesus is rabbi. Yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you, friends. God bless. God bless.
Somebody. 